Man, why have you put that on Facebook? Fucking take that down. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Double Reel, the podcast that brings support and comfort to film nerds around the world. It's November 2021, the clocks have changed, and it's wall-to-wall Christmas adverts. We're here to keep you warm and safe with a generous helping of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Uh, hello, thank you for having me and it's good to be back. We aim to provide an old school film goers experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at Double Real Film. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode 19. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds, with some film news, a look at how we're living up to our film-related resolutions for 2021, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month we're discussing award-winning 1990s southern gothic drama, Eve's Bayou. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Paul Thomas Anderson's overlooked neo-noir, Inherent Vice. Then we turn to the one that got away, and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 19, we're looking at Sergio Leone's lost masterpiece, Leningrad. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at Michael Mann's disastrous big screen version of his own TV series, Miami Vice. After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the big conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 19, we're looking at safety on film sets, and after the credits, we have a spoiler-filled discussion of the new Bond film, so you can switch off before then if you haven't seen it yet and don't want to hear key plot points. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the Podcast Magazine Letters page. People have been getting in touch regarding our features for this month, and our classic Eve's Bayou, Rusty says, it's superb, there's an unrecognisable Diane Carroll as a voodoo priestess, and the young girl playing Eve is brilliant. Trina, Melissa and Veronica all agreed. A few people got in touch about The Last Duel, which we covered last month and is in this week's news. A lot of people don't even seem to be aware of it, or the subject matter. Mitchell says, I saw it and thought it was fantastic, but the trailer for it was terrible and gives no idea what it's about. I think it would have put a lot of people off. On our hidden gem Inherent Vice, Johan says, I love it, and I agree, it's hugely underrated. Dev says, I thought it was a brilliant slow burner with an excellent cast, but I can see why other people wouldn't enjoy it. Uh, So Dave won't be surprised to hear that Gary thought the cast was sending out all the right signals, but I just didn't enjoy the film. On our Year of the Carpenter entry Halloween, Kim says it's one of my favourite movies to watch, and Vicky, Lily and Ryan all agree. On our remake Hate Watch, um, Miami Vice, Corey says, Michael Mann has made some great films, this one not so much. Friend of the Pod Tech says, I have a love-hate relationship with it. The look, clothes and cinematography are great. Individual scenes I love, like the boat at sea on the way to Cuba. But it makes no sense, horribly miscast, and Farrell and Fox are meant to be blood brothers, but they don't even seem to like each other. On our big conversation topic, safety on film sets, Jacob writes, I work in the film industry. Thankfully, nobody in my city has ever been shot while filming something, but there's very much other related deaths on set that isn't a fatal shooting. A special effects engineer died on the set of Titans after faulty wire made a car blow up next to him. Always keep that in mind. Safety in general is important, not just with prop guns. 
which we completely agree. Thanks very much for your messages. Uh, we can't all read them all out, but we're grateful for them all. Now on with the podcast. Now for our regular roundup of Month in the Life of Two Busy Film Nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of the year, we made some film-related New Year's resolutions for 2021, and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see, and contribute to a richer and broader cinematic experience. Before we get into the roundup, I just want to give another shout out to our new podcast, The Adamsons Versus. We now have two episodes uh, out there for you to listen to. The uh, the most recent one is The Adamsons Versus The Cocaine Bear, uh, which we hope you will listen to and enjoy. So that bit of self-promotion out of the way, um, we come to the news. Um, what, what news has caught your eye, James? Um, has there been much news? I've not really been paying much attention. I've been quite busy, actually. I've managed to fit in the time team and watch the stuff we're going to discuss, but I didn't actually see anything of note. Maybe I've just, maybe I've just completely. Yeah, it. I mean, obviously, because I know, because I know we're going to do some news, I sort of go looking for it a little bit. So I usually have something, but I wouldn't say it's been like a hugely busy one. I mean, one piece of news related to the film industry, which has you know taken up a lot of the airwaves, not just on film pages but on the main news, uh, is the death on the set of the movie Rust, which. Um, uh, it, it happened after we'd after we'd recorded uh, last month, um, and we it's the reason we decided to discuss safety on film sets in real two. Um, but obviously, the tragic news there is that Alec Baldwin was involved in a, a, a an accident on set in you know in which the director of photography uh, was killed, and uh, there's been much discussion of that ever since. So that's one piece of news, which is um, we we have some thoughts on that which are in real two. But yeah, that news has obviously been dominating everything. Other than that. Um, other news that, that that I saw is June Part Two has been announced. Uh, the critical right. and commercial performance of June Part One uh, has been enough. Pretty much within within a few days of it of its you know premiere and release, the, the studio announced, "Yeah, that's fine. We're going to do June Two. It seems to have gone fine. Um, so we are going to get a second part of that." Um, the only other real news that I I saw was um, that was discussed was that um, the last duel, which we watched uh, discussed last uh, last episode and really enjoyed. Um, sadly, though, it's it's not done very well at the box office. Um, you know, financially, it's a flop. I mean, critically, I think it was a big success, but it hasn't made its well. It's not going to make its money back at the box office, right. which is which is a shame. I I'm not sure Ridley Scott gives a shit about that at this stage because he's. He's, you know, he's made enough hits. I mean, The Martian was fucking massive. It made like seven hundred million. Uh, his his reputation is secure um, for the most part. I think he seems to be in a phase where he says, "Fuck it," he's going to make the film he wants to make, and he's much better when he does that. So I think he's just going to crack on. He's got his next film lined up, which is Napoleon, the Napoleon movie we discussed. He has another film coming out uh, in in a in a few weeks. So I don't think he's bothered, but it, it, it is a shame that a film that good and that timely hasn't been successful. There's been a number of reasons for it. Uh, it said, well, it, it skews towards an older audience. Uh, and a lot of them, especially in America, aren't going out to the cinema yet. Um, as, as one of our, or a couple actually of our, um, listener messages were that 
the film hasn't been marketed at all. There's a couple of people, you know, you know, people who are responding to socials messages from us about film. So they're not exactly just your average punter who doesn't pay much attention. And they're going, I didn't really know what it was about. I didn't like the look of it. And, and you, know, you get into a discussion with them and they go, oh, it's about that. Fucking hell, I'm, I'll probably tune in. Do you know what I mean? It seems to have, it seems not to have reached an audience in terms of its marketing and promotion. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I also think it struggled with the fact that it came out at the same time as a fucking Bond film. And yeah. A Bond film that was delayed by about two years, so. Yeah. There has, been, there has been a lot of fixture congestion in the movies coming out. I mean, The Last Duel wasn't meant to come out now. I'm sure The Last Duel was meant to come out at least a year ago because Ridley Scott's next film comes out a month after his after his last one. That's clearly another one due to the, the COVID delay, isn't it? Yeah. So I imagine that has something to do with it. I also think that, you know... I don't know. I, I don't know why folk didn't go and see it. Um, or maybe it didn't make his money back because he, it, it does seem like he spent a lot of money on it that he didn't really need to spend. If you get what I'm saying, there's a lot of big action shots that are in the film because Ridley Scott loves a good mm-hmm. military battle and things like that. Which, when you actually look at the content of that story, it's it's a well, you know, it's a well filmed sequence like the battles that are in it. But you know, it doesn't need to be, doesn't really need to be in the film to tell that story. But I imagine it's cost a lot of money to do all. Yeah, it did, it cost over a hundred million dollars, and I don't yeah. think I think an an R rated drama that is that raises serious issues. And gives you someone to think about um, that costs over a hundred million dollars is always up against it. But like I say, I think Ridley Scott just said, "Fuck it, I want to make a film which fully recreates the medieval world." There are battles in the story, so I'm doing the battles, you know. Yeah. Um, no, no. And I, I, I think honestly, he's probably sitting there thinking he does not give a fuck about the box office performance because I think he had his arm twisted to compromise, for example, the Kingdom of Heaven, which is his other medieval drama that he made. Um, and when the director's cut of that came out, everyone went, oh, fucking hell, this is actually really good. That's a shame. Um, and I think now really Scott is just going, fuck it, I'll make it $100 million and I'm going to do all the battle scenes. I think, And I think the film stands up. The film will find its audience over time and I think it's going to stand up as one of his best. So at this stage, I don't think he gives a fuck. Um, and given that he's getting a chance to make more films, you know, it's not killed his career, then pff, fuck it, you know? Yeah, it's not it's not a commercial flop because it's a bad film. It's, I just don't think people have gone to see it. If you're going to no. go, people obviously still don't have a lot of money at the moment because of the pandemic. So, you know, if they're going to go yeah. spoil themselves on a film, it'll be probably a film. That's yeah. And, and it's probably been James Bond or even Eternals that came out. As well. Yeah, and I, I think people, I think films are getting a bit of a pass at the box office anyway. I mean, the Bond film didn't make a fraction of what they would normally make. I mean, it's yeah. done really well, but... Um, it's not made as much as Skyfall did, for example. And no one says, oh, shit, Bond's, Bond's taken a downturn, do they? They say, well, that's good money for now, right? And Dune, Dune got green lit within a week, even though that's not going to make... That's going to do okay. That's made like... I think it's made about $365 million against a $165 million budget, which when you take all the promotional costs in, is probably break-even, and it's still in the cinema. It's going to make It's going to make money, Right. But it would have made a lot more money in a, in a normal year, and I think everyone's just going. Look, let's not worry too much about that, you know, or we'll worry less. So yeah, it is what it is. Um, other than that, I mean, I I haven't seen any any other news. So there's only a few topics really. Yeah, I, I didn't mention the rust thing because I genuinely did that not happen while we were recording the last episode. I think so. And then yeah. Afterwards, we decided that we were going to make it. Yeah, yeah. I th- I think. I, you know, we sort of had a heads down recording and then, you know, the news alerts are pinging on my phone 
I think it either I think it might have happened the day before and got and got you know and then got announced to UK time about lunchtime after we finished recording our last episode. So there you go. Yeah. So yeah, there it is. Um, other than that, I mean, the main news is always what films are out, and there are a few films coming out, some of which are quite interesting. Um, there's a film coming out um, uh, imminently. By the time this uh, episode is um, uh, live and released, this will already have come out. It's King Richard, which is a biopic uh, of Will Smith uh, playing the father of the Williams sisters and how he was instrumental in the success of their careers. Um, apparently, he's quite an interesting guy. There's a bit of buzz around Will Smith that he might... Uh, he might be back in contentions for some awards after that. Let's see what the film is actually like. Um, but that's what people are saying. Um, on the 24th of November, Encanto is coming out. It's a new Disney animation with songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, it's always nice to see um, him involved in a film because he usually makes things uh, you know, very good to watch. Um, 26th of November, we kind of touched on earlier, House of Gucci is out. Ridley Scott's other new film. Um, this is obviously coming out so soon after his last one because of, you know delays to, to his previous film coming out. It's based on the true story of the Italian fashion house Gucci and various power struggles, conflicts, and even murder among the family during disputes over who controls um, the family in their business. Um, and it's um, it's supposed to be a re- really interesting story about who did what to whom. I've deliberately not read up on it because I don't want it to sp- spoil the plot of the film when I go and see it. Yeah, me and the missus are the same. She, she wants to go and see it, so I've done that thing where I've watched the first trailer, and that's it. Uh, I'm not yeah. watching it anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because it's about events in which, you know, someone got murdered and the, the family are public figures who, who were in dispute with each other. You could probably read up and then know what happens in the movie, and I'm not doing that. Um, great cast, Salma Hayek, Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, Al Pacino, uh, Jeremy Irons. Um, uh, I mean, it sells itself. They're all, you know, it's Ridley Scott again. It seems to me like this is going to be similar to what, well... My guess is that it's similar in, in in how Ridley Scott did that movie, All the Money in the World, which was about the real events of the um, the, the Getty kidnap in the 70s, uh, where he goes, that's an intriguing story. I'm going to, I'm going to make that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, next one, in the, on the 3rd of December, we've got a few more uh, things coming out. Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, um, yeah, because that. that franchise just will not die, uh, ironically, like the zombies in the film. Um, Boiling Point is coming out, and that's a smaller, more independent film. That's got Stephen Graham of This Is England and, well, you know, Line of Duty and everything else he's ever done um, as the head chef in a busy restaurant, kind of high pressure environment. Environment, you know. Oh you, yeah, I think I've seen trailers for that. Has that yeah. already been out? So I've seen a scene from that. It, I'm pretty sure. It. I don't know. It's it's films like that when they get a cinema release, they've usually, especially like an indie film, they've probably been at a couple of um, festivals and stuff beforehand. And it might have, I mean, there's been weird stuff like films were like in the cinema for like a couple of days and then pulled. I remember seeing something on the Kermode and Mayo show about this. And I was like, oh, this film's really good. Is it going to go for any awards? And they went, unfortunately, no, because we, we were on release for about a week, two years ago. And put they put us down for awards then. So we were not eligible for awards now. So it could easily have been out by now. Um, but it's it proper release. It? There was a 2019 short film, and I've seen about four minutes from that. Ah, right. So so they often they do, that. they make a short film and it helps. Yeah. Then sometimes they go, well, now, now that I've generated some interest, I'll do the big version. Oh, that'll be it. That'll be it then. Um, on the 10th of December, we will be getting Clifford the Big Red Dog, oh, a big that. screen adaptation of the old kids cartoon. I mean, if they're, if they're doing that now, I'm looking forward to similar film versions of Banana Man and Jamie and the Magic Torch. Um, it's like they really are reaching the bottom of the barrel in terms of big screen adaptations of, of kids stuff. Um, West Side Story is coming out, the Spielberg remake of the classic 60s musical. 
Uh, again, I mean, we are we are a podcast that tends to decry uh, remakes that we think are unnecessary. I'm not sure what you know why we need a remake of a movie that you know of a, of a, that seemed fine at the time, but you know whatever. Um, Spider Man No Way Home uh, is out as well, which is another Marvel film, and uh, it. What's interesting about this is that there's that um, as well as the usual guest appearance from another Marvel character, which this time is Doctor Strange. Apparently, Alfred Molina is reprising his role from the um, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films as Doctor Octopus. And oh, Jane- it's not even that. It's not even that. Have you seen it? No, I mean I've seen I like part of a trailer. There's um, apparently Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire in it. It's like apparently it's a full-on Spider-Verse thing. Really? Well, I do know that. Apparently. I do know that because Andrew Garfield's promoting another film, and he's kind of said he's not answering any questions about Spider-Man: No Way Home, which. You, it must mean he's involved in it because he, he doesn't need to sign an NDA to say he's got nothing to do with the film, right? Um, and Jamie Foxx is back as Electro because he was uh, you know reprising the role from the Andrew Garfield. So if they're doing a bit of a live-action Spider-Verse, that could be quite fun. Much as I'm not a fan of Tobey Maguire, um, the, the fact that they're starting to knock around with that kind of... I think I think, I think Marvel's multiverse stuff is really cool. Um, so if they are knocking about with that, I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd like to see that. Yeah, apparently, which would be... There's a lot of rumour, and everyone's... Andrew Garfield's got another film out, and everyone's asking him about that, and he's going, I'm not going to talk about it. So it's like... It's like... I I quite liked Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. I thought he did a good job. I think Sam Raimi just made shit films. I thought the first two were very good, especially Spider-Man 2. I think the best bits about Spider-Man 1 and 2 aren't anything to do with like the direction. I actually think it's the performances in it. Yeah, yeah fair I enough. I, I I generally don't like Tobey Maguire, but I couldn't say he did a bad job in the first two films. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I thought I thought Andrew Garfield was a better Spider-Man, but the, the films were, were pretty poor. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, imagine being imagine being Tobey Maguire reading the Spider-Man three script. <sighs> I mean, obviously he he, he would have checked with his agent and said, "Look, can I get out of this contract?" Yeah, um, yeah that was that was horrific. Um, 22nd of December, The Matrix Resurrections, which I have seen a trailer for. It looks interesting. Um, apparently, only Lana Wachowski is involved because Lily Wachowski didn't want to go back to old stuff that uh, that they'd done before. Um, and in the trailer, it looked like um, older versions of Trinity and Neo are sitting around um, and they seem to have memories of what happened in the previous films and then it all kicks off again. So we'll see what that's like. I think it looks like it's going to be shit. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to much hope for this one. I'm, I think the first Matrix film is really, really good. I don't think the Wachowskis did anything particularly good after that. Uh, especially not the, the two other Matrix films. I mean, they're already, they've already got a one out of three ratio of good Matrix films um, before this belated sequel. The only so. redeeming thing about it is that they've got Keanu Reeves, they've got uh, Carrie Ann Moss, they've got Christina Ritchie, they've got Jonathan Groff, Priyanka Chopra-Jones, Neil Patrick Harris, Jada Pinkett-Smith. They've got people who can act. They've got like a stronger core of a cast. It's just... Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I uh, yeah, Abdul Mateen as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good. He's very good. Um, it's but it's just it just dust about what Lana Wachowski's fucking written on. Look, yeah, look. Uh, I mean, I think it's better to go in with low expectations this time. I was so excited about the Matrix Reloaded, and it was a really kind of dismal <laughs> screen experience. Shit, 
And the other, um, the other film that's coming out by the 22nd December, I and mean, anything coming out after that we'll have to cover in our next episode, is The King's Man, which is a prequel to the whole Kingsman universe. Oh, yeah, that looks fucking awesome. I, I really want to go see that. Yeah, uh, Ray Fiennes is always, is always good value, so we'll see I how that pans out. I think he's one of the most underappreciated actors of this generation. I'd put you about right on that. that I mean, I've never seen him do any to be bad, and he's always livened up anything I've seen him in. Um, I'm a big, you know, I'm a big advocate of Strange Days. It was one of our, you know, one of the big hidden gems that we did on this podcast, and I think he was tremendous in that. And he's really good in a real variety of roles. So yeah, look, looking forward to that. Um, so yeah, that that's the films that are out this month. Um, I think we know which ones we're most interested in going to see. You know, some people get to see them all. Um, we'll see what uh, we'll see how some of those pan out. Uh, apart from that, it's all about what we actually watch this month. Um, so what what have you been what have you been watching, mate? Did you go and see anything at the cinema? I did. I went to see Spencer. Really? Ah, so what was that like? Shite. Ah. It's shite. I mean, I must say, I thought the um. Uh, the I I thought the trailer looked crap, but as you said, the um. Uh, it was that dichotomy. I thought the trailer looked crap, but all the reviews have been absolutely spectacular. I mean, what was she like? I mean, was it was it one of those films that, that um, lives or dies on the well, performance? I went to see it with the missus, and she thought the entire thing was shit, and she didn't even think the performance was good. And I said, I thought that Kristen Stewart was very good. I thought she did, um, she did a good job, but the direction of it's just terrible. You know how Princess Diana in photos would have her head kind of tilted a little bit every yeah. time they had a like a single close up on Diana she'd have her head tilted and stuff like that. Um, and it was just completely playing on that. It's like, it's like someone, it's like a Spanish director or something, Pablo something. Yeah. Uh, Pablo Lorraine. And then Christian Schultz, you've got an American and a Spaniard just looking at what happened outside rather than actually being from Britain and knowing what it was like. And it was, it was just messy, man. It was, uh, plays her off as she's like some absolute fucking Fruit Loop who's like losing her mind. I, I imagine the stuff that, that Diana went through was pretty pretty tough and pretty brutal but spoiler alert big spoiler alert fast forward 10 seconds if you don't want to hear this but it, kids on Diana was speaking to the ghost of Anne Boleyn <laughs> yeah uh, I mean so the guys the guys from Ch- Chile so the director's from Chile and the lead is from um America, so it's not, it's not, it's like, it's got like a British cast in it, and it's written by um, Stephen Knight, but it was just, it was just shit, it was, and it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't even like it trying to be a biopic, it was a completely fabricated story, and there was bits where she's eating soup, and because she obviously had um, bulimia, she struggles to eat, so she rips off the pearls that Prince Charles got her, because he also got the Charles that Camilla got them, uh, got her. And he, she starts eating them in her soup, and I'm like, "What the fuck? What is this?" Mm. I, I mean, that sounds like the sort of thing. I mean, the the problem with any film about Diana is she's she's an interesting character, but it's quite difficult to kind of uh, get into. All right, does anyone have any insights to what she was like outside the public eye? Are you gonna Are you gonna be able to tell that story accurately? Um, and also because the because the royal family kind of plays out like something like a soap opera or a reality show where people are either Team Diana or Team Charles, not that, that many many people are Team Charles these days, 
it's I think it's very difficult to do a balanced portrait of someone who's not not a, you know everyone's flawed everyone's got things that they might have done wrong in a you know in a in a in an acrimonious divorce in the public eye no one no one acts perfectly all the time but if you if you portray that then people are like slagging you off so they they seem to it sounds like they've gone down the route of like, let's do some sort of completely fictional story but I'm not sure. I'm not sure you can satisfy anyone with uh, with any film you make about this character, and I think that sounds like they've they've aimed for something and, and really really missed the mark. The thing is, there's enough material there. You, people know what happened that specific Christmas at um, I think it was Sandringham. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows. Everyone knows that the the, the marriage was in bits and mm-hmm. they were falling. But it just focuses solely on Princess Diana. There's one scene with Prince Charles, and there's a couple scenes with like her children. That, but it is mostly just her life. Mm. But it's it's just so much speculation when you didn't really have to make a story in so much speculation because the story was there. You know, we don't know what exact conversation she had with the Queen and stuff like that, but that's what the Crown tries to do as a TV show, and the Crown works because they know that this happened. We mm-hmm. know that, you know, the Queen felt this way about it. Do we know the exact words the Queen said? No. Mm. But we can still make a good TV show from it. Um, yeah, I mean, the last series of The Crown that covers a lot of the Diana years probably came in for more criticism than previous series, especially the older ones. And my sort of pet theory on that is that a lot of the stuff in the first couple of series of, of, of The Crown was about stuff that happened in the 50s and 60s. There wasn't as much kind of publicity around around them at the time. There wasn't, you know, and there's a lot more that go, oh, I didn't know that. Whereas this time you've got his his Charles, his Diana, and, you know, the papers were talking about it, everyone else is talking about it. And I think it's quite hard to navigate that now. And as you say, in in a movie that t- covers three days, you've got the stuff. Well, was Diana a fruit loop? Well, she might be near to breaking point sometimes. But is that is that the main impression you want to give about her in your film about her? You know. But I, I look. I was skeptical about it from the, from the trailer. But from all the reviews, I thought you were going to come back and tell me you'd actually quite enjoyed it. But there you go. Um, I think she will win the Oscar because she's playing. You know. Diana, Princess of Wales, you know she's she's like the sweetheart of the nation, mm. and she's just one of those characters. It's the royal family, and any British famous character, especially a royal, just gets so much attention from the Academy. I don't think it was that good a performance. Mm-hmm. I thought she did well, and it's nice to see Christian Stewart, you know, acting and doing well because usually she's been in shit like Twilight and she... Charlie's Angels and Snow White and the Huntsman. So she she has got ability and she yeah, she's a be- she's stuff. a better actor than she gets credit for. She's in a movie yeah. called The Runaways, which is about Joan Jett and the Blackhearts, which is well before your time. But she actually did a very good job in that as well. So yeah, I was no, I wasn't going to go and see it, so I'm glad you went to see yeah, it and went through it for it's me. It's fucking mental. Like she's got this. <laughs> She's got this person who helps her like get ready and get dressed and stuff like that. I don't know what they're specifically called because she also like men's dress. It basically just tends to her. Yeah. And then halfway through, like towards the end of the film, spoiler alert, um, Diana's really upset and she just goes, Oh yeah, I love you. I'm I'm madly in love with you. And she's like her she's been a lesbian this entire time seeing her body naked and stuff like that. Didn't happen. Did not happen. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of these times we are going to have to have a conversation, you know, it's pro- I think it's worth a conversation that says, you know, biopics and fictionalising real-life stories and, you know, whether it yeah, works and whether it for, doesn't. We could do that for Braveheart, we could do that for... Well, any number of things, you know. I mean, The Crown, Peter Morgan... Well, The Crown's not a TV series, but The Queen, the Peter Morgan film with Helen Mirren, there's quite a number of them where... And, you know, we, we, we had something similar with the uh, the Brian Clough film that we watched, um, Damned United, where, you know, there is a debate about whether whether it is correct to 
fictionalize and say stuff happened that didn't happen. Same with the social network. Um, but yeah, it is what it is. So, weren't keen, no? No. If you, I mean, watch if you want to watch, but I wouldn't pay... I'm going to... I will probably wait for it to come out via um, home viewing. Yeah. Um, anything else at the cinema? Nothing at the cinema, no. Um, I'll just I'll get my Netflix up if you want to talk about stuff. So I will talk about what the new new films that I've seen. One was at the cinema, one was streaming. Um, I went to see Dune at the cinema. Oh, okay. Was that good? Uh, yeah, I thought it was really good. I loved it. Oh, it was excellent. Danny Villeneuve's done it. I knew he was going to do a good job. He's, he's, he's the right person for this kind of thing. He did a terrific job. Um, he really brought it to life. He, he avoided all the pitfalls that the previous film fell into but still managed to deliver something exciting, interesting, and create the world of Dune up, you know, on film. I thought it was amazing. I thought Hans Zimmer's music was amazing. Um, they did a nice job casting all the characters. If I'm honest, I, I've been on the fence about Timothée Chalamet, uh, but he did a really nice job as the main character. Um, yeah, he's a good actor. He, he is a good actor. And the, the, the tricky bit about that character is that at the start of the film, he's, he's, um, he's meant to be a teenager. And uh, you couldn't get an actual teenager to play that part because the, the the story of Dune plays out over a few years, and by the time they're you're in the second half of the film, he'll be far too young to play him. So you've got to find someone who looks very youthful, um, uh, and can play that part. But then you know, but but still be like a, a a presence on screen. He did a really nice job. He just captured. Um, He's young, and at times, you know, he's a teenager, and he's not entirely, you know, he's not entirely happy about, you know, being dragged off to another planet, you know, from, you know, from home, and you know, he he gives the impression of being a slightly moody teenager, but at the same time, there's something otherworldly about him because his mother's, you know, been, you know, he's inherited these strange powers from his mother, and he's the son of a duke, and he knows that he's essentially a, you know, going to be responsible for, you know, a whole, you know, whole planet at some point, and he, I thought it was a really nicely balanced performance. The, the world comes to life, technology comes to life, the story plays out really well. I think he did a great job. The only the only thing I'll say about it, and I can't call this a criticism, but it really is only one half of the story. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that they've um, uh, that they've announced the second half of, uh, is going to get made. Because the way I'm feeling about this is like you're at a football match, right? And it's been an amazing game and your team's 2-0 up, right? And if you ask people at halftime how it's going, they'll say, oh, it's going brilliant. We're playing amazing, Yeah. But you can't ask them what they think of the whole game yet because it's only halfway through. Uh, the story stops right in you know right in the middle of the story, and it's a to be continued. Um, it's not like the Lord of the Rings, where although you know Two Towers and Fellowship of the Ring do stop in the middle of the story, those stories were written as individual books with the next book to come along later, and that the story's a little bit easier to film that way. This really does feel like only the first half of one film, uh, and I think if the if the second half comes out and is as good as this you'll be talking about a masterpiece but you'll be talking about it as one film so it's a really 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 good first half and i'm really looking forward to the second half i, I think it's a terrific job okay, good. um i've not watched anything else to be fair. i've been more into my series this month actually i'm not gonna lie yeah um the other the other thing i watched was the harder they fall which we talked about and we put some stuff on the socials about it because i, I listened i listened to an interview with the, with the director james samuels who's also a musician goes by the name of the bullets and his Seal's brother, which I thought was interesting. And this is his debut film. Um, he's a big Westerns fan. He loves Westerns, loves Sergio Leone, all that kind of thing. Uh, as, a, as a black guy, being a big fan of Westerns and then finding out that there were a bunch of very interesting black characters, or not, not actually, not characters, actual historical figures from the Wild West, like Billy the Kid and like Butch Cassidy, 
um, that have never had their own film. He went, well, I love Westerns. Uh, I want to see black people in a Western, so I'll do that, which sounded really interesting. And in his interview, he's a really kind of lively character and he does voices. He does the voice of Al Pacino and he, he hums the theme to Good, the Bad and the Ugly to say that he wanted to create some music for this film. So this guy sounds really jacked up about this movie. I want to go and see it. Um, I couldn't get to see it at the cinema because it's a Netflix release. Um, so it, it had a, a limited run at the cinema and I just couldn't get to see it anywhere like accessible to me. Um, so it came out on Netflix and I watched it there. And I would say I liked it. It's a cut above your average Netflix original because it's not just one of these kind of cookie cutter films that's come out where they've just kind of said, I'll do this, we'll stick it on the algorithm. This is actually a film that James Samuel conceived, wrote, and had a reason for making it, and Netflix have given him the money to do it, which is what I think Netflix is for. So it's better than your average Netflix film. And there were a lot of things about it I really enjoyed. Um, but I think it was only kind of quite good, and it, it wasn't as it wasn't as brilliant as I hoped it would be. Um, and the reasons for that, I think, are a couple of things. One is a lot of the action comes across a little bit like... Um, you know, like you go these filmed versions of like the more violent and, and adult-themed graphic novels? You know, that they all have that kind of look. A lot of the action was a bit like that um, when I think it could have been a bit grittier. Um, although it was very stylish and really well shot. There's these amazing shots, for example, of them riding, you know, horse riding through like wintry conditions and, you know, because they're up in the mountains. Um, but I didn't feel like it created a, you know, a sense of uh, this is where they're going. This is the world they're living in. It was just, that's a nice shot. We'll shoot that. So there's some terrific photography. It looks good and it's well shot. It's My criticisms are, I think it could have been better than it, than it was. Um, it's just little things like, Every single person looks like they're in a brand new costume that's been made for the film. And all the saloon bar scenes and all the town scenes look like freshly built and painted sets. They don't look like a dust-blown western town that's got paint peeling off that people have been living in for a few years. Um, but unfortunately, instead of saying... Because you could have made that a stylistic choice. You could have said, actually, we're going to make it kind of really, really stylized. You know, yes, this doesn't look like a real western town. Yes, everyone's a brand new costume. Yes, we're playing like reggae music on the soundtrack instead of traditional music, but we're going to completely lean into that and create a style that's based on that. I don't think he quite went far enough in creating his style, and I do think it would have been better if those um, sets and costumes had looked a bit more realistic, if I'm honest. That's just that's just me. The other thing is it did have some interesting storylines, which I don't want to spoil. You know, it was more than just good guys and bad guys fighting each other in, in the story. There were some interesting storylines about, you know you know, the black people needing their own place in their own land and that not being easy to pull off and other stuff going on between the main characters, which they didn't quite do fully. It was just kind of there as plot points. And I think it could have been better. So it's good. And I like the director. He's a really interesting guy. And a lot of what he did in this film was very good to watch. It doesn't hold together as well as it could have done. So I enjoyed it. It's definitely worth a watch on Netflix. If you're looking for something to watch on Netflix, it's like a, a, a massive step up from your average Netflix original. And if you like a Western, it's fun and it's enjoyable. Um, it could have been better, though. For someone who's a big fan of Leone, it, I mean, it's not in that league. Um, it would. I, I'll tell you what, I've seen enough to hope the guy makes more films, yeah? Uh, and I enjoyed it. Um but I, I, I had this little hope in the back of my mind that this was going to be like a new kind of stylist of Western movies that was really going to do, almost do a Tarantino with Westerns or do a Leone with Westerns. And that's that's really, really high expectations. And maybe that's unfair of me. I enjoyed it and I'd like to see more from this guy, but it was only, it was, it was good. It was an enjoyable couple of hours, um, but no more than that.
But, you know, I, I came out of it with good feeling towards everyone involved in the movie. Do you know what I mean? But it just wasn't quite... I wanted to be up on my feet shouting at the end, at, wow, what an exciting new talent. I didn't quite get that feel, but I'd like to see more from this guy. Yeah, you see, the way the way, the way my current, I suppose, living situation is right now is that I'm staying with my girlfriend um, the majority of the time, but my Xbox and TV's back where I usually stay. Right, so that's not making it as easy for you to but, watch. But also, because of COP26, I've not been wanting to drive through that fucking traffic and yeah. congestion and shit like that because... The, the town's actually not too busy because all the roads are shut, so you can actually get to like the outskirts of town and it's not too busy, but yeah. the bits that are now busy are like the kind of bridges and tunnels into town and that's where I drive through. So once I once we've got our own place sorted and uh, I'll watch I've still got to watch the Green Knight, I've still got to watch The Harder They Fall. Mm-hmm. I'm watching Peaky Blinders, you know, I'm properly getting into that now. So <laughs> there's you know uh, once it's all sorted so hopefully come my, my new year is to just kind of watch all the shit i said i'd watch um, <laughs> yeah yeah so so you've you've had a little bit of disruption so maybe you're not getting not getting through to watch as as much as yeah, you like and because it's it's my missus folks's place you know they've got a big tv but you know if it's their tv and they want to watch whatever they watch during the week i'm not going to kick them off it you know what I mean? yeah, yeah they're usually away at the weekend and stuff like that so if we have time i'm not working me and the missus will watch something so yeah Okay, well, look, you know, mitigating circumstances. You have watched a couple of things. I mean, you watched a new movie, Spencer. So, but that's yeah. but that's that's your watching and that's your resolution pretty much taken care of, isn't it, mate? Yeah, it is. That's the provisional date for our new places next year, and at that point, we'll have a lovely, a lovely setup with all the good stuff that we can watch and not be disrupted. There's a fucking Very car good. going past, fucking Polis. Yeah, it'll never sell ice creams at that speed. So my resolutions were just were the, the usual two. The first one is to watch an old favourite, watch something I haven't seen in a while. Um, um, do this for a couple of reasons. Sometimes it's watching something that maybe I needs a reassessment or maybe it's just something I haven't watched in years and I'd like to watch again. Um, this one sort of fell in my lap. I was thinking about, oh, what, what, shall I watch, what shall I watch this month that fits this resolution? And in the end, my wife said, you've been talking about that film Zodiac. Um, why don't we watch that? Because it's David Fincher. He was behind the TV series Mindhunter, which is about the FBI profilers and the serial killers. My wife's really interested in all that sort of thing. So she said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, you'd love Zodiac then. Uh, So we sat down to watch that. Um, For those people who don't know, it is the story of the Zodiac killer who, from the 1960s into the 1970s, terrorized Northern California and, and San Francisco. Zodiac is one of the first kind of big name serial killers. He gets mentioned in the same breath as Ted Bundy and all the more notorious for never having been caught. Um, he's responsible for at least like somewhere between six and 12 murders that people can definitely confirm. Um, there's a strong suspicion he's responsible for 20 more. He wrote letters to the police and to the, the San Francisco Chronicle newspaper in which he claimed to have killed up to 40 people. This is the story of it, it does show you the, the killer himself and some of the murders he committed and some of the other kind of near misses that people had with, with the serial killer. But it, it's it's principally about the obsessive um, sort of quest to catch him from some journalists uh, and the police. Uh, I mean, you've seen Zodiac, James, haven't you? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, David Fincher goes to town with the visual look. There's some really evocative shots of, you know, the fog creeping in over over the Golden Gate Bridge and the, the way the city looks. And it's got this very oppressive, paranoid atmosphere. All the actors are very good. It's a, it's a dream cast. Um, you know, Mark Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr. doing something... Um, he doesn't do that often these days because of his commitments to Marvel. We might see him start to do that again now that he's he's finished with that. Um, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Um, 
it, it's a very sort of methodical, painstaking film that takes you through, you know, the lives and the and the atmosphere of of the time, rather than like a. Uh, so it's it's kind of like a. It's almost like a police procedural, but you don't ever catch the killer, which is frustrating. They do name a guy who who they believe is responsible, but and was a big police suspect, but died before he could be um, fully investigated for it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really compelling. And, you know, considering they don't have car chases or many face-to-face confrontations with the killer, I thought it was really gripping to watch. Um, it's everything I remember, It really. I've always really enjoyed that film. Um, the other film I watched, uh, or the other resolution I have, uh, is to make 2021 the year of the carpenter. Uh, for for this month, we are down to, you know, pretty much the last two um, John Carpenter films. We are on Halloween, the, the film that really made John Carpenter's name. Uh, it's his 1978 film that he made, which kicked off a, a new horror, horror subgenre, really, the slasher film, uh, sent John Carpenter's career really into the stratosphere. Um, slasher movies had kind of been made before. Obviously, Psycho is really the birth of the slasher movie in that way. And there have been some Italian Jallo films and a film called um, Black Christmas um, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, sort of. Um, but this really brought it together and combined that, that idea of the slasher movie, the ordinary teen sort of cast members so it, it combines teen horror with a slasher movie um and i think the reason it became so popular is the idea of this relentless deranged killer especially at the time when real life serial killers were out there um but the people on screen were like ordinary teenagers and the target audience of the film could see themselves up on screen in in that jeopardy um and this is where it all began um for those of you who aren't aware the story of halloween it's actually quite familiar michael myers as a child commits a horrible crime in small town america he's locked up for many years in a mental institution when he reaches adulthood he escapes goes back to his hometown and uh terrorizes teenagers as they babysit and hang out on halloween night and that's it um it's interesting that there'd never been a horror film take place on halloween before um so that was quite novel at the time uh this was a huge smash hit. It cost $100,000 to make, which was a small amount of money even then. It made $70 million, so it was an absolute smash hit. I think it made 700 times its budget at the box office. Yeah. Um, that is why there's been so many horror movies and slasher movies since then, because it, they're so profitable. Um, even now, you've got films that come out which get a really shitty review, like The Nun and all of these kind of conjuring kind of sequels. Um, um, but they, they only cost like 3 or $4 million to make, and they easily make 30 40 million um at the box office it's and that's why people make these movies because they're they're profitable there's a there's a good audience for it out there this is where it all started what's interesting about that film is that unlike most of the slasher films that came after it it's got real talent and craftsmanship in the making of the film because it's john carpenter he actually spent half the budget of the movie on the cameras i don't know if you know that mate no i didn't um, basically he wanted to film it in Panavision, like the big widescreen cameras that they used to make Westerns, because he wanted to he wanted to just have the full kind of widescreen frame so that a lot of a lot of horror movie photography is about making uh, the, the the character who's about to get, you know, chased or killed or whatever look very isolated. A lot of horror movie shots are really like disorienting from a certain angle or making them look like, you know, view them through a window. And the use of that frame is just just amazing and there's some really famous shots where because of the widescreen frame uh michael myers appears in shadow behind the main character and it freaks everybody out so it's just it's just brilliant i mean if you want to see it, it's hard to see what the effect of this film would be now because it is quite tame compared to modern horror films and everyone's kind of seen it but if you want to see the effect of this film there is a video on youtube which is a uh, it's a recording. I think it was done by the by the film people back then because you couldn't just take a camcorder into a movie back then without getting into trouble. 
and it shows the audience reaction to some key scenes in the Halloween movie and people screaming and losing their minds at the key scenes. Um, and that you, you watch that, you see the real kind of impact of this movie because since then, these films have got a lot more gory, a lot more nudity. You know, no one would spend the first half of the film just setting it up and building the atmosphere and having these people being watched and stalked before anything sort of any violence breaks out but that's exactly what John Carpenter does and he just builds this beautiful gripping atmosphere um and that's before you even mention the music because he just uh like he did back then to save money he did the music himself and also he's a very talented composer uh he I think he he wrote and composed and recorded the music in like five days all the music cues that he needed and it just makes, you know, it makes the movie because he just, it's like another character in the film. So interestingly, it's it was the start of this genre of film, but it was also the peak of it. Everything was downhill after this. Friday the 13th, the Freddy Krueger films, all of these. None of them have ever been as good as this because, you know, John Carter is a proper director who was making a horror film. And a lot of these other films were like just jumping on the bandwagon. There's only maybe the screen films which like direct films with the same quality and, and cast as this. Um, but they were kind of a bit self-referential, almost a spoof of the slasher movie anyway. So really, Halloween is this kind of unique movie on its own. It's a cliche now because it's been copied so much, but it's it's just a really classy film. Which is an odd thing to say about a slasher movie. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it, you, you can forgive all of this stuff that it, you know, it was filmed in California. It doesn't look like Illinois in autumn. They had to put... They had to paint leaves red and put them on the ground to make it look like it's autumn. And you actually, if you look, the trees are all green and the leaves are all green. So it's clearly not autumn in, in Illinois. But you don't care because you're watching the film. It's so well done. Um, so look, there's there's nothing else really to say about Halloween. It's a classic film. It doesn't have the same impact. I mean, I remember I remember showing this to to your sister, um, you know, when she was just, you know, uh, she's become a big horror movie fan and it's like, well, I'll show you some of the classics and she loved it. And she loves the, the, the reboot of the franchise. Cause now she's got her, now she's got films in this, you know, in this, in this genre for her generation. Um, she watched this and said it was really good. It was really creepy. Not, not as scary as like some horror films compared to now. Um, Cause it, it just can't be. If, if John Carpenter had made a film as violent and explicit as the films that came after it, uh, it wouldn't have had the same. People would have just said, "Who the fuck are you?" I mean, it happened to Wes Craven. He did a horror movie that was really seemed quite extreme at the time, but just seems quite normal now. Um, so, what John Carpenter did, there's not. It's not that gory. It's not that explicit. It's just beautifully, beautifully done. I mean, it is. It, it, it's it's as close to a Hitchcock um, slasher film as as as, as John Carpenter as, as John Carpenter would ever get. It's a real, really, really, really classy film. Um, now. What I always do in relation to something that we watch, and it's usually the John Carpenter film, I, I do an impromptu top 10, um, and I'm going to do that um, for this. Uh, there's a little Easter egg in Halloween where the kids are all watching horror movies while they're being babysat by Jamie Lee Curtis, and the film they're watching is the original version of The Thing, which everyone knows John Carpenter went on to remake. So there's a little, there was a little Easter egg in there, and also it's. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to do a, a top 10 of um, films that show people watching films and, and how that might be... Uh, relevant uh, to what's going on in this story. So here's my impromptu top 10 people watching films in films. Um, so 12 Monkeys, where they're watching Vertigo and the Birds, which is a very interesting counterpoint to what's going on in the story. Uh, Blazing Saddles, where the two main characters go into a cinema and watch their own film to see how it ends. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, where watching Rita Hayworth films has a major bearing on the story. Um, Hot Fuzz, where they watch a uh, double bill of Point Break and Bad Boys 2. Uh, Zombieland, where they watch Ghostbusters at Bill Murray's house. 
An, Amer an American werewolf in London watching the film in the porno cinema with the ghosts of the werewolf's victims. Scream 2, where the killer murders someone at a screening of the film based on the events of Scream 1. Inglorious Bastards, couldn't leave Tarantino off this list. Here a climactic scene takes place in a crowded cinema. True Romance, Tarantino again, where the young lovers meet at a screening of a Sonny Chiba uh, double bill. Uh, and finally, Cinema Paradiso, where everybody watches all the films with uh, kissing taken out. And then at the end, there's a montage of all the kisses, which is probably the most beautiful tribute to cinema. Um, so I'll, I'll top it off with that. So that's the impromptu top 10. That is the Year of the Carpenter entry for this month. And that's our roundup. Just quickly, before we get into it, I just saw something on the news there um, because I'd clicked on um, IMDb and it came up with a little link. Uh, you see, Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be playing Jim Jones. Is that the Jim Jones, the cult leader? Yeah. They Yeah, they did a TV movie way back in the day with Tommy Lee Jones and now Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio is having a go at it, is he? Yeah. That's well, interesting. That, that'll be... Um, any news on who's going to be directing or anything like that? Or? No, this, the screenwriter is Scott Rosenberg, who did Venom and something else, which I can't remember. Oh, right. Rosenberg, I think his name is. I can't yeah. It's always interesting to see Leonardo DiCaprio do something, so let's see how that pans out. Quality, let's get into it. Nice one. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before, and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films, and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, from German submarine drama Das Boot to John le Carre's The Constant Gardener. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature, as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations, including Wages of Fear, Inherent Vice, The Assassin, 25th Hour, Departures, Short Bus, A Tale of Two Sisters, The City of Lost Children, A Royal Affair, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, Boyhood, The Good, The Bad, The Weird, In Order of Disappearance, The Shape of Water, Dead Man's Shoes, Mississippi Burning, Eve's Bayou, Sea of Love, Zed, Touch of Evil, and The Hitchhiker. This month, let's let's stop adding. It's just for it's sake. just forever, isn't it? This month, like old people fucking Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> this month, we're discussing an award-winning gothic drama from the 1990s that we haven't seen, and which the great Roger Ebert called the best film of 1997. Our classics and recommended feature for episode 19 is Eve's Bayou. Bless you. <laughs> so. What was your what was your background to this film, James? Had you had you seen or heard of this before before it came out? Never heard of it, mate. Never heard of it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was borderline whether this should be a, a hidden gem or a classic. I mean, the reason it's a, it's not, we're not calling it a hidden gem is that you know, a hidden gem is a film that we've seen and want to champion out to the audience. This is a film that's been recommended to us, and when the world's form, foremost critic is um, is recommending it as his best film of the year, and it won a bunch of awards and was and successful when it came out, then it's not for us to to tell you it's a hidden gem. It's it's for us to talk about it as a classic we haven't seen um so um some background to this um i heard about this because i was listening to a podcast about the new Candyman film uh and also the old Candyman film you know because that's what people were doing discussing the two films and uh it's a, a very good podcast called the final girls it's uh, presented by anna bogatskaya and her guest was kelly wilson who's a um a, a writer for sight and sound 
Um, they talk about horror films from a from a female perspective and a feminist perspective, uh, but mainly they're just a really good podcast about horror films. And in passing, when they were talking about the original Candyman film, they said that one of the actors in that film went on to direct Eve's Bayou, which was a great film. And I went, oh, I'll write that down. Let's get a recommendation from you know people whose opinions you respect. Um, so that's why I went and had a look at it. The actual um, background to the film itself is uh, Casey Lemons. Uh, she's actually an African-American actress who um, became a director. Uh, this was her directing debut, uh, which was not that common back then. And it's you know, thankfully getting more common. Um, and it is, it came out in 1997, but it's set in about 1960. And it tells the story of a, a small black town or African-American town in Louisiana, which seems to kind of exist in its own space um it, it's i think it's a feature of the segregation of the time that they that they had their own uh you know place to live separate from everyone else and they seem to have been quite successful it's a reasonably prosperous town the uh the father of the the main character is a is a doctor he's doing well so it's quite interesting to see a film about the black middle class um the, the opening sort of line of the film is that is the the girl the well the girl as an adult narrating uh, i was 10 years old the summer i killed my father and you go, oh, okay, what's going on here? And then it recounts the story, and it tells um, it tells the story of this family with hints of, of voodoo and second sight and all sorts of gothic elements. But in a lot of ways, it's a family drama about um, you know remembering you know trauma and 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 family disputes and various things going on and 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 how they shaped your life. Uh, so it's. Um, it was the the most financially successful independent film, the highest grossing independent film of 1997. It won a bunch of independent spirits and Chicago Film Critics Awards. Uh, Roger Ebert said this film should be nominated for Oscars, if not, the Academy isn't paying attention. So with that recommendation behind it and that very interesting opening line, I sat and went, okay, what's all this about then? Um, so I don't know, I don't, what did you, how did you find it? when? Because I think you just watched it cold, didn't you? You just, you got the recommendation, you sat down and watched it. Yeah, I didn't watch it. I didn't read anything about it either, which was good. But yeah, it was nice. It was nice seeing it in an interesting kind of. Well, not maybe not interesting because it's, it's. I suppose like black families are you know are a thing, but we don't see many films about them. So it was nice to have a film yeah. just about like a because the, the the only other film I've seen in terms of like that I've had like a black kind of family dynamic was the Fences. Yeah, fences? yeah, but Things that's like that. that's a more traditional one, isn't it? I, mean, I know the fences is like one of the classic, you know, plays of of, of the twentieth century, um, and uh, you know, so it's probably much more well known to the Americans. But that's kind of quite a familiar story, and it's black people who are living in a, in in the inner city and aren't that very well off. I thought what was interesting about this setting is it is the black middle class. The dad's a doctor. Yeah. Um, everyone else is, you know, it's they're they're kind of a, a it's a reasonably well off small town with your usual kind of mixture of people who just happen to be black. And I thought that was very interesting because that you really don't see very often in films. And so, yeah, it was nice to have that kind of dynamic to start with, you know, like kind of like a kind of precursor to the rest of the film. And then it's got some kind of like, you know, darker elements to it. But overall, I thought, yeah, it was, it was a good film. It was, you know, what, it tells what, an interesting story and it has, it puts a lot of faith in the young cast. And I think the young cast do quite well. Um, you know what I thought it reminded me of? Um, it sort of reminded me of To Kill a Mockingbird, um, but it had, it had much more of a kind of dark cloud of kind of foreboding hanging over it because it does, you know, from the from the opening, you know that it's talking about death. Um, but it had that same thing where it's a long summer and it's about how, it's like the coming of age of these kids. 
Um, it was also quite interesting as well on the idea that they're they're kind of a they're kind of a traditional kind of God fearing family. They go to church and all that sort of thing, but they also believe in things like second sight and voodoo. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting that it's kind of Louisiana seems to be a place where you get a lot of that kind of thing, don't you? It's the idea that you have quite traditional families, but also there's a kind of almost people believe in the supernatural a bit more than everyone else does because they live out in these, you know, kind of exotic locations out in the bayou. Yeah, no, um, it was a, it, it was interesting. I mean, it also, it, it, although it is a middle-class family, they obviously have their issues, which the film kind of yeah. dissect. Um, yeah, I mean, without giving away too much of the plot for people who might come to you know see it themselves, is that Samuel L. Jackson plays the you know the the, the father of of the uh, uh, of the family, the father of the house. He's a doctor. He's very respected and loved in the uh, in the town. Um, he's also a serial womanizer. He's sleeping with his patients. He's sleeping with um, his you know wives of his friends. He is uh, not really doing that much to hide it either. Um, his wife, Lynn Whitfield, is a really, I mean, she's quite beautiful and kind of uh, uh, interesting and an attractive woman, but there's just so, so it's not her. You don't get the impression that she's driven him away or anything. He's just the kind of guy who likes to shag around. Do you know what I mean? And it's interesting that they don't portray him as being a, a monstrous character. He's just, he's a good doctor. He looks after people. Um, you know, his kids love him, but he's also. You know, so that, that that's the kind of thing they're talking about. These these people are flawed. They they and they feel more realistic because the director and the you know who's also the writer is portraying them as she's showing all sides of her characters. Yeah, no, it was it was it. What I liked about it is that it obviously had some kind of mystic elements to it, it mm-hmm. had some kind of spookier voodoo sides to it but it didn't become fantastical it didn't yes become absurd yeah and stuff like that it yeah nicely yeah and it, it it really did it really did sort of play that out in quite a subtle way in that um you could choose to believe that the voodoo priestesses got some power or you could just choose to believe that you know that's you know that's how you know that's how that story would have panned out because of the way people are. Do you know what I mean? There's a, there's, yeah. I think a lot of the story is driven by the way the characters are, leads them to do certain things and leads them to collide with other characters, which is, I think it's a, it's a, it's a well-written film in, in that way. Um, I tell you what's really interesting, the way it sets up the start, it's got that element of, of death because it, because it's got two kids and because there's that hint of the supernatural, those, those things always work very well because kids, those things feel more real to kids, don't they? And kids are, you know, have, have got quite, when kids are frightened of things, that's quite a powerful feeling. So that idea of kids and kind of fear and foreboding creates quite a strong atmosphere for the film. I thought it was really interesting, I don't know if you noticed this early on, is that the mother is this kind of beautiful, you know, hostess of dinner parties and stuff who everyone loves. And the, and the, the father is this, you know, very suave doctor. Samuel L. Jackson is playing... He's a much more low-key performance than you get from him in other films. Um, and early on, there's three kids, and the, the the narrator, the main character, is the middle child. And there's a scene early on where the mother kind of gives her a kiss and is like affectionate and sweet to her, but then gathers the youngest child, her son, up in, in her arms and gives him a huge hug, and that the middle child watches that and feels like, oh, I'm not the favourite. Do you know what I mean? And then she has a similar experience with her dad, who is nice to her and very pleasant to her, but is clearly, you know... Uh, his favourite child is the older daughter, and you've got this middle child watching that and thinking, you know, uh, you know, what have I done? Do you know what I mean? It's, my mum clearly loves the youngest child, and my dad clearly loves the eldest child. What am I? You know, chop liver. 
Um, and the way that the way the kids, like you say, the way the kids interact with each other, that they carry the film in a way because it really is mainly about them and their experiences. And um, and you can see these people are on some sort of a collision course. And as you say, they have that video atmosphere built up over it. But you also have, you know, the way the mother reacts to knowing that her husband is 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 having an affair. The way these, you know, uh, the way the kids kind of build up their their feelings over the year and. You know, there's lots of nice coming-to-age scenes, like, you know, they're out in the swamp and they see a snake, and that's why it reminded me a little bit of To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and uh, what was interesting, even though in the opening scene, the narrator says, in that summer I killed my father, I got into the, the third act of the film and really wasn't sure how it was going to end. I don't know how you thought about that. I just went, I started to get an inkling of how it was going to end, but I was really going, I'm not quite sure how this is going to pan out. Yeah, I kind of like that about it because you can you can almost always tell where something's going and you kind of see where it's coming. And then, not that it was a twist, it was just I didn't really have an idea. Yeah. Um, and no, I, I thought it was good. I thought it was a, a good, solid film. Yeah, and Casey Lemons hasn't directed that many films, which I think is a shame. I think um, without wanting to get too, you know, uh, social justice about it, I think there is an element of she directed a film which was a big commercial success with a big cast and had, you know, won awards and had people, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, rapturous about it. I mean, Roger Ebert honestly said that it was his best film in 1997, but she didn't get a ton of offers to make new films. And I wonder if a white male indie director who'd made that kind of a splash would perhaps have, you know, got more career opportunities as a result of this film, which is a shame. But We don't know. Maybe because it was the 90s, that's what happened and I hope that isn't the case yeah. but I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah, but she is still out there making films. Um, she direct, wrote and directed Harriet, um, the Harriet Tubman story, which I know you like, James. Yeah, it was good. Um, so yeah, this is this is a really good film and, and I'll I tell, tell you what's uh, what, what's good about it is that it's not quite like any other film. I know we've I know we've described how it's reminiscent of other things and it's a Southern Gothic drama. It's not the only Southern Gothic drama film that's out there but it really did feel like it was doing enough different and interesting and unlike other things you might have watched to, to genuinely be worth seeing. And I thought it's well played by everyone. It's well written, well directed. So um, you know, thank you to the people who recommended that, and and hopefully a few people uh, listening are inspired to watch it as well. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it and reevaluate it. This month we're discussing a film by the great Paul Thomas Anderson, which seemed to sink without trace on release despite good reviews. The hidden gem for episode 19 is Inherent Vice. So by way of background, this is an adaptation of a novel by Thomas Pynchon, who is considered one of the great American authors, and one or two of his novels um, are considered to be, you know, among the, you know, among the best American novels out there. Uh, Inherent Vice was actually a novel he wrote in about 2009, so it's a bit of a late career novel for him, and it's looking back on the 70s, which is an era that he was he was around for, and it's got a kind of a, one of those kind of sort of slightly arched eyebrow, ironic look back at an era with a bit more perspective, um, and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is clearly very influenced by the 70s. He's a big fan of Robert Altman and Martin Scorsese. You can see some of that in his earlier films. Uh, and Thomas Pynchon himself has influenced people like the Coen brothers when they did The Big Lebowski. Um, and because Inherent Vice is essentially a private eye drama, it has a lot of similar tropes to 
things like The Big Sleep and especially Rob Altman's The Long Goodbye, which is set in the 70s and kind of talks about bygone eras. So it, it, it covers familiar ground, but it does it the Paul Thomas Anderson way. So it's it's got a lot of his his stylings to it um, and is an attempt to film a, a, a film a novelist who's not been easy to bring to the screen. So when I went into this, I wondered, I wonder what I'm, I'm I honestly wonder what I'm going to see here. And, and while I was watching it, the, the one overriding thing I thought in my mind, in my mind, James, was I didn't think you were going to like this very much. Um, it was all right. It was, it wasn't really, I'm not a big Paul Thomas Anderson kind of guy. And it is kind of like his film, like his type of film. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't particularly for me. I don't, I, I've enjoyed some of his stuff, but um, mm-hmm. I mean, look, he he, he is he is yeah, he is one of those people. He he does he he does his films very much his way, uh, and if you love that, I mean, I think anyone who loves Paul Thomas Anderson will love this film. Anyone who is um, not sold on Paul Thomas Anderson, this wouldn't be the film to kind of sell them. And I think his most accessible film is probably Boogie Nights, which Boogie Nights is very much him doing Scorsese. Um, it's got a similar kind of like narrative kind of forward motion to something like Goodfellas that gives you this range of characters and shows the passage of time and, and the uh, you know the unraveling of people as, as as their lives kind of you know hit a collision course. Um, this is definitely him in Robert Altman mode. This is definitely him looking back at the seventies. For, for the benefit of the audience, um, it's set in nineteen seventy uh, and it's an interesting time period in the sense that the the period of hippie free love is over. Um, uh, you know, Altamont, uh, the the Rolling Stones concert in which people were killed, and the Rolling St- uh, and the Rolling Stones used Hell's Angels as security with disastrous results has happened. There's clearly a dark side to you know uh, the the cultural sort of counter you know counterculture revolution. Um, the Manson family have have committed uh, horrific uh, murders of Sharon Tate and her friends, um, and hip the hippie sort of culture which was already sort of suspected and disliked by your more traditional kind of socially conservative families is now the name's absolutely mud because they're associated with cults and murder and all kinds of like moral panic um Joaquin Phoenix one of my favorite actors plays the main character who is a, a kind of an a you know a, a, not so much an ex-hippie he's still a bit of a hippie but he's a private detective um, and he very much you know believes in the hippie world and kind of pines for the death of that era uh, so he's already looking back at a bit of a bygone age, while at the same time he's hated and despised by your more traditional straight people like the cops. And he gets caught up in a, a case where his ex-girlfriend says that this rich person is about to be you know, kidnapped and put in a, in a home and uh, as part of a, a scam to take all his money. Um, and then she disappears and he fears for what's happened to her. And in following the case, he finds out all sorts of things that are going on. There are property deals. There are deals to do with Las Vegas. Uh, there are Aryan uh, white supremacists who, 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 you know, very violent, very dangerous, involved in it. The police detective, played by Josh Brolin, who knows him, doesn't like him, but they have the, this kind of odd, almost friendship. Wants him to investigate something, and he's, he's, you know, he's, it seems like he's been manipulated and pushed into various areas. And it's one of those kind of shaggy dog stories, quite similar to the Long Goodbye, the Big Sleep, the the Draymond Chandler classics, because at the end of it. There's all sorts of shit going on, and it really comes down to the main character deciding which part of all that shit that's going on he's actually going to try and follow and work out and and, and chase down, and it, and it becomes quite a personal story of him and his ex. Um, Catherine Walston is in it. 
I mean, I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was very good. I'm not sure where I'd put it on the Paul Thomas Anderson list. I think I need to watch it again, but I did enjoy it. This is, I mean, the thing is, I like Robert Altman and I like those private eye stories and I like Paul Thomas Anderson. So it was really comfortable, comfortable viewing for me. Um, uh, I, 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 because it's kind of, there's a lot of comedic elements to it and there is a lot of similarities to Big Lebowski. I was coming our way, you know, before I watched it, I was thinking, am I going to come away just thinking this is Paul Thomas Anderson's version of the Big Lebowski? But I don't think it was. It was very different to that. But I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, uh, but not in the least surprised that it didn't um, uh, that it didn't float your boat, James. Um, for other people who 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 sort of know a bit of Thomas uh, Paul Thomas Anderson and wondering, you know, exactly what this is like, it's it's kind of there's a lot of kind of strange comedy elements to it. It's like in, in sort of incompetence, but there is kind of quite a dark storyline to it. It's sort of reminiscent to the second half of Boogie Nights, I thought, where one decade is over and the fun has stopped. And kind of the dark side of things is taken over, uh, but it's 1970 is the is the turning point instead of 1980. Um, it does sort of exist in the same sort of quirky film universe as as the Big Lebowski, and also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it's kind of set around that time. Um, uh, I thought Whacking Phoenix was terrific. I thought the act uh, the cast are very good. Um, whether you enjoy it really does depend on whether you do like this kind of. Films set in that era about kind of the end of the hippie era, but also that kind of convoluted private eye plotline. That's really what it's about, isn't it? Yeah, no, I I I actually like the premise of the story, but I I just I thought it was far too long for what it was. Yeah, I mean, in my it, opinion, I thought it went on for too long, and it was. But I enjoyed the idea of the story more than I did from of other Paul Thomas Anderson stuff. I thought Boogie Nights was a load of pish. I couldn't be arsed with it. Um, but I think it's just one of those those films from a director that you like. He's kind of like Wes Anderson a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say he's... He's he, less quirky. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think he's he's less quirky, but I do I do think that his films are very much a matter of taste. Um, I mean, I think technically and formally, I think he's, he's, he's an absolutely brilliant director. Uh, and some of the films that he's done have been complete masterpieces. But I would certainly, I'd put this in the same brand as The Master, which Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson did together with Philip Seymour Hoffman prior to this film. I think The Master is an absolutely amazing film, but it's it's really quite strange, um, and and a lot of people might be put off by that. And I think it it really is about kind of following a character and kind of the strange. Um, it's basically a lot of strangeness gathers around one person, doesn't it? Um, it's definitely him playing that sort of thing a lot more for laughs. I think some of Paul Tam- Tom Thomas Sanderson was a lot more serious now, like There Will Be Blood, and this is him. This is his idea of a kind of like uh, oddball comedy, really. But Paul's, but his idea of it, um, you know, if you like Johnny Greenwood film scores, is one of those few as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, again, it, it it is very much is what it is. I think I think you will read the description, the synopsis of this film. And know that it's directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, and I think you'll know whether it's for you or not on that basis. Do you know what I mean? This isn't the film that's going to get you into a director that you're on the fence about. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's I think it's just one of those things. It, well, I'm, I understand why people enjoy it. Just it just wasn't for me. I just didn't have the the patience for it for a film that long. I thought it could have been done in, a, in an hour and forty instead of two hours and thirty. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it's very much Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to go and create this whole world, didn't he? And kind of put his feet up and kind of build the whole atmosphere. And if if you 
It is. I mean, these a lot of these private detective films are real kind of shaggy dog stories. I mean, even something like The Big Sleep, which I think you, I don't know if you've ever seen the original Howard Hawks Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart, James. No, I haven't. I think you'd really like it because that tells like a kind of private detective story and it's like done in like 98 minutes and it's really brisk and gets that whole kind of storyline across and it's full of sharp dialogue and everything. Um, but those films are, like I said, they're like shaggy dog stories. It's like there'll be a whole bunch of plot lines that come out that may or may not be relevant. And part of the fun is going, eventually the private detective says, there is so much shit going on here. This is all I'm, you know, this is what I'm, I'm this is the thread I'm going to follow. Um, and it's it's only going to work for you if you if you really want to live, as you say, for two and a half hours in in that world. Um, but yeah, it is long. It is it is a long film. I'll give you that. So, and anything else that that caught your eye about this film? Um, it's a it's a good cast. It's just it really just wasn't for me. I feel I feel like I can I just maybe just didn't get it. But it's an excellent cast. Um. I don't think it's a case of not getting it. I mean, the, these things. I don't think the films are at all difficult to understand. It's just this. The stuff in it, like the the voiceover, is done by a friend of the of the main character who is is not really that instrumental in the story herself, and she gives you that odd perspective on on the story and the events. And there are little bits between scenes where Joaquin Phoenix is, you know, he's like a hippie. He's clearly a hippie. He's got the hair and the sideburns, even when he dresses up in a suit. Um, and as he's going on his way to like have a conversation or speak to City Hall, he gets beaten up and harassed by the police, just as a matter of course. And it doesn't even discuss it. And it just kind of says, well, that's what happens whenever he goes anywhere near a police station. And it's all that stuff. It kind of happens about three or four times. And it's like a motif for the film. I think it is It is very much It is very much a, a specific kind of style of film that you're either going to you know, be into or not. Um, like I say, you like There Will Be Blood. I don't know what you thought of Magnolia. I've not seen Magnolia, but I always mix up with Vanilla Sky, and I think I've seen Vanilla Sky and not Magnolia. All right, no. Magnolia is Paul Thomas Anderson. It is absolutely most Paul Thomas Anderson. You might lose patience with it, but that is... Paul Thomas... And, I mean, Magnolia is an absolutely magnificent film. It's, you know, a, re- a absolutely revelatory performance by Tom Cruise, and that's one of those films where you get a, a wide range of characters and their stories all come together by the end. Um, this is far more... It is played for laughs. And I think some people will look at the story and go, well, if this is all a joke, I'm not sure if I'm going to be that emotionally connected to it. Um, I'm... Although, I mean, I'm younger than Paul Thomas Anderson, but I think I'm of a similar generation that kind of looks back on the 70s with a certain fondness. And I, and I think if you like that sort of thing and if you like those sorts of films and you like a bit of Robert Altman, you will love this film. And I did really enjoy it. I'm going to... I'm, I'm, now I'm going to need to watch it again to really kind of get the full flavour of it. Um... But it is. Um, I mean, it's it's one of those things. I think Paul Thomas Anderson now, when you, Paul Thomas Anderson now, when you look at the films that he makes, he's very much got into the stage where he's just making whatever film he wants to make, like Phantom Thread, The Master. Um, he's, uh, you know, I think he's, you know, he very much plows his own furrow. Like you say, I mean, it's similar to Wes Anderson. Although I know you really hate Wes Anderson, he is. Yes, he is a uh, he is a, a director of a, of, a, of a given style, and this is this is very much up to Paul Thomas Anderson's standards. Um, and whether you're into it is going to be entirely down to it, the individual taste, I think. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. 
This month we feature a true lost masterpiece that could and should have gone ahead, but for the sudden death of its director. The one that got away for episode 19 is Sergio Leone's Leningrad. Now this is the granddaddy of unmade films. This is um, this is a film that was all set to happen, and I think we can be confident would have been a truly classic film, uh, and you know had the budget and the logistics and was ready to go, uh, and we were cut short and deprived of a uh, of a potentially great film by a director who sadly didn't make all that many films. I mean, Sergio Leone's only really made a handful of films, um, all of which are very sort of highly regarded. Really, I mean, his first film was like a a standard sword and sandals epic, but it was clearly a cut above the rest of them that were made then showing his talent. And then he made the spaghetti Westerns that made him and Clint Eastwood famous uh, and then just progressed from there. Um, sadly, uh, after he made uh, a fistful of dynamite in 1971, he only made one more film once upon a time in America and then was cut short before making this last one Leningrad. So this really does feel like a, a big hole in the filmography of a, of a, of a true great of cinema. Uh, I know you like Sergio Leone James. I know his Spaghetti Westerns are your kind of uh, favourites of his films. I'm not sure what you knew of Leningrad before we um, before we lined it up for this feature. No, I know of the history of Leningrad. Um, it was um, Saint Petersburg, and um, no, it is Saint Petersburg, and it was also known as Petrograd, um, and it was involved in the war. So I kind of had an idea of what this type of film would be, but I didn't know the actual reason it didn't get made. I just mm-hmm. thought, oh, why did you not make that film? Was it this? Was it that? And then I obviously did some reading into it. Um, yeah, I mean, part of the reason, you know, there was always a risk that a film like this isn't going to get made because if you look at um, Once Upon a Time in America, which I think is Sergio Leone's, you know, absolute masterpiece, it took him well over a decade to get that film made. And he decided after he did his westerns that he was just going to pursue much more ambitious films that took a lot, lot longer to make. So by their nature, he wasn't going to make a lot of these films, right? Um, and he looked like he was going to make this film maybe no more than like six or seven years after Once Upon a Time in America, so that the, the gap wasn't going to be as long between that and his previous film. But, you know, look, one of the reasons, you know, people get old, you know, you can't stop the passage of time. And when people are going to leave longer and longer gaps between the films, there's always a risk that one of their big projects isn't going to make it out there, you know? Yeah. No, so, but I did, I did the reading into it, and obviously he wanted to, the film to kind of focus on a Soviet... Um, so, no, it started on a Soviet. The opening scene was a Soviet hiding from the Nazis, and then it, the plot focuses on Robert De Niro playing an American frog, photographer on assignment. Yeah. When the Luftwaffe began to bomb the city, and it was, they kind of had like the idea of the plot and what it was going to be, and um, the the end, the cameraman Robert De Niro would have died on the liberation of the city, um, and during the film he's managed, he's fallen in love with a girl and got her pregnant, and. Um, she knows that he's uh, died by watching um, the movie news because the camera explodes under a shell. Yeah. Um. So she knows that that's her man, and it's it's that's how the film would have ended, and he would have obviously fleshed out a little bit more. He set the budget at a hundred million dollars, and he got half the money secured. And um, Ennio Morricone was going to compose. Uh, cinematographer was going to be Tonino Delicoli, who I'm pretty sure he'd worked with before. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was all it was all of his usual collaborators were lined up to make this. And Robert De Niro, if you if you listen to Robert De Niro's interviews, he'd never actually officially signed on to do it. But not he hadn't refused to do it. It's just Leone hadn't got to that point yet. And I don't think he'd have you know he had a, he, you know De Niro himself said he had a great experience with Sergio Leone and was would have loved to work with him again. Um, yeah, and as you say, he'd he'd 
he lined up a $50 million budget from the Soviet Union, and crucially, he'd got agreement from the Soviet government to cooperate and provide actual tanks and actual Red Army troops and extras and logistics to get the film made. So he'd done the hard part, and he was in meetings with um, a studio. I think it was Paramount, but it was one of the big studios in America and with people in Western Europe to get the rest of the money. So I think we could be confident that he had what he needed. He certainly had more... He had, considering where he was before the start of Once Upon a Time in America, he was much more lined up to make this one than he had been Once Upon a Time in America. Um, what, what, what's hard to kind of pin down is that he was quite elusive with his with his um, his scripts and his ideas for films. There isn't a script for Leningrad, um, but that's not that unusual. He started filming um, Once Upon a Time in the West with a 15-page outline. And for Once Upon a Time in America, when he was securing funding and getting cast members for that movie, he only had the beginning and the end kind of laid out that he could explain to people. Um, so he, he he had a very interesting way of making films, which means that, you know, wanting to know what a film like Leone, a film by Leone is going to be like is much harder before he's made it. Do you know what I mean? Whereas some people you can get a full script and like, you know... Um, you know, like when we did Hodorowski's Dune, there was a script, there was, well, there was sort of a script, but there's the book that you can base it on and there's like art and designs and everything. With this, there's a lot of interviews that Leone gave about, oh, it's going to be like this and it's going to be like that. And as you say, he had the beginning and the end very clear in his mind and he was going to he was gonna find his way from the beginning to the end, wasn't he? Yeah. And it was, I think it was one of the kind of, oh man, like it wasn't even a case of, the funding wasn't to get there. It looked like it was going to get the money and it was going to get made. He was about to go into pre-production. It was happening. It really was. I mean, having half the money from the Soviet Union is, I mean, because he's, he's got the absolute gift of the gab. When he started trying to do this, the Rush, the Soviets were like, we don't want to make this. We don't want some foreigner coming in and making us look bad by talking about the story of Leningrad and how Stalin let the city down. There's a lot of conflict and politics around it. By the end of it, he talked them all into it. Now, he was helped by Glasnost and the fact that Gorbachev was more receptive than previous Soviet leaders. But he, he, he had support from Gorbachev to make this movie. And I think when he, especially in Europe, where his reputation was at an all-time high because of Once Upon a Time in America, he he was confident he had meetings lined up and he could get the rest of the money because when he says, well, what have you got? Well, I've got $50 million and the support of the Soviet army. It's like, well, yeah, we, we can make this movie, you know? Yeah. It, it was going to happen. Um, to give people a bit of background, Leningrad is a less well-known story from Russia in World War II than, than say, Stalingrad uh, and, and you know, some of the battles around Moscow. Um, the, the, the overall narrative of World War II is that Hitler delayed his invasion, probably, you know, fatally delayed his invasion of, of Soviet Union. It was meant to be a surprise attack. He he uh, he dithered over whether to do it because he was he was back he was backing out on a long standing deal that he had with Stalin. Um and the the size, the weather and the you know the sheer resistance of the Russian people defeated him. Unlike Napoleon before him, a lot of his people just um you know, died and and were you know rendered you know unable to 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 operate by the 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 deprivation and cold of a, of a Russian winter. Um, but also the the Russian the Soviet you know people held out in extreme circumstances. And I think we know a lot about Stalingrad because there's the book of Stalingrad and two films about it. But Leningrad is less well more than one film about stuff that happened in Stalingrad. But Leningrad is less well known. Le Sergio Leone's uh, interest in this film came from a book called Leningrad, The 900 Days, which described the siege. 
the Soviets weren't keen on that book, um, and he needed. He found a Russian account um, that he was able to talk to them about, so that he it wouldn't look like he was, you know, uh, basing it entirely on like a Western anti-Soviet kind of perspective. Um, and for nine hundred days, so about two and a half years, Leningrad was under siege uh, by the the Nazi forces and also some Finnish forces because they were. Um, they'd been attacked and invaded by the Soviet Union um, at the start of the war, so they were they were getting some payback. Um, I don't think the Finnish like to talk about how they cooperated with the Nazis in World War Two. And in that time, the the people of Leningrad held out um, under incredibly difficult circumstances. There were people dying, people freezing to death in the streets. Um, it was very very difficult to supply the city because the they, the city was surrounded on like three sides by um, by Nazi forces. And on the other side was a big lake. And only when the lake finally froze over and that they could actually get trucks and logistics across the frozen lake could they supply the city. But when they did that, it meant that Leningrad could finally hold out. And another of these long kind of supply lines for, for the Germans out to Moscow broke and they couldn't complete their invasion of Russia. Um, and it's a story of incredible bravery and incredible resilience by um, the Soviet people, incredible difficulties. There's all sorts of stories from within that. The, the composer Shostakovich um, composed his his Leningrad symphony, as it came to be known, in the city and was in Leningrad while the siege was on. He volunteered as a fireman um, while the city was being shelled and bombed and, and attacked from the air. Um, a million stories of great bravery by the Soviet people, but also cannibalism and people may you know some people were like murdering each other over um scarce resources so it really was a story of unbelievable kind of power that that fascinated leone and like you described james he had this amazing opening shot that uh that he was going to do and this kind of tragic ending and he he created a fictional story about an american um uh journalist or photographer who was meant to just be covering the first few weeks and ended up staying the whole 900 days I don't know if there's an actual individual character who really was there in real life, but it was the way Sergio Leone was going to give you the personal side to this big historical event. Um, if you read up on it, there's a really great book by Christopher um, Frailing about Sergio Leone's career that has a chapter on this. Sergio Leone essentially got the funding and the support for making this film by his description of the opening shot, which would have been one of the most ambitious pieces of cinematic filmmaking ever made they weren't even sure you could do it because it was going to take more feet of film than you could fit in a film camera back then but it was going to be this amazing opening shot which which started on the fingers of Shostakovich while he's while he's performing his symphony it's going to pan back and show you the room the symphony uh theater where he's performing and then pan back through the city where uh, they're pushing horse and carts through the city. There's firemen, there's stuff going on, there's fires in the city and they're, they're, they're holding out for a siege and it pans all the way through the city. These follows a truck to the edge of the city and then it goes past the fortifications and across the plain or the steppe as, as, as it's called to a battalion of German tanks getting ready to attack them. And then it does a close up on one of the tanks as it fires a shell and then cuts to you know the opening titles, Leningrad. And Sergio Leone could get pretty much anyone to agree to make a movie with a description of a shot like that. He really had some incredible vision in mind, um, and then he was gonna he was gonna use all of his talent, all of his resources to tell the story of that whole city. He initially had a lot of resistance for making it because the Russians, the Soviets, did not want to reopen this period in history, especially in the seventies when Leone first started talking about it, because um, Stalin. Uh, 
was prepared to sacrifice every single person in Leningrad. And it was pretty bad. About a million people died um, in this siege. So it was an absolutely horrendous event as it was. And, and Stalin was prepared to let all of Leningrad die to protect Moscow. Um, and then after the war, um, he didn't want, A, the fact that he was prepared to let all those people die come out, and B, he wasn't keen on the focus being taken away from Stalingrad, the city named after him, and his efforts to win the war. Um, there was all sorts of political jealousies in the Soviet Union. He did not want the story of Leningrad and other people being the heroes and him being seen as something less than a hero because of what he did during the war. So he not only suppressed the story of Leningrad, a lot of the people involved in the defense of Leningrad were taken out and shot. So there's a lot to this story. There's a lot to what Stalin did. There's a lot to what the Allies did. There's a lot to what um, the people did defending the city. And Leone just wanted to tell that whole story. So it's a hugely ambitious, ambitious project. And the other thing is at $100 million, this would have been the most expensive film made at that time. Um, this was going to get come out in maybe 1990-91. And in 1991, the most expensive film ever made was Terminator 2. So this film is going to be more expensive than Terminator 2. This was this was going to be an absolutely extraordinary undertaking. Um, so it is a it is a bit of a tragedy that we didn't get to see it. Yeah, no, it sounded like it would have been a bit of an epic. Um, yeah, I mean, really, the the, the sole reason that it didn't um, the sole reason that it didn't happen is that um, in the year leading up to his death, uh, Leone was having heart trouble. He'd had a few heart problems, you know, during the making of Once Upon a Time in America. He'd gone on a diet. He tried to kind of improve his health. But sadly, his heart problems returned. Uh, and in 1989, he, he had a heart attack just before pre-production was going to take place. So the alternate universe we like to picture, imagining where one of these films actually got made, just required Sergio Leone to be in better health. Uh, and then we would have got this movie. Uh, I think it would have been completely extraordinary. I mean, there's really nothing else like it. I mean, there, there's other films out there. There's two films about Stalingrad. Um, there's other films about the Russian front. I think you and I, we've both seen Enemy at the Gates, James, which is about the siege of Stalingrad, which I think gives you an idea of like what the flavour of a modern film would be of, of, of a film about that era. Um, yeah. But this really would have been really quite spectacular. Um since then, other people have tried to pick it up. Uh, Jean-Jacques Arnaud um, tried to um, pick up the story and make it. He couldn't make it, and that's why he went on to make Enemy at the Gates, which we just discussed. Um, Giuseppe Tornatori, who did Cinema Paradiso and was a protege of uh, Leone, he went out and tried to make the film, and for a couple of years he was actually involved in the making of it. But this is one of the films that only could have been made that way uh, and in, in the scope that it would have described um, and by Sergio Leone. No one else could have done this. So once he died, this this was over. We're never going to see this movie. Um, I'm, I'm in no doubt that he would have made it work as well. I mean, it's really interesting that The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is, is in a lot of ways a war film as much as it's a Western because it has those amazing scenes of the Civil War and that battle and uh, the destruction of the bridge and all, you know, in the, in the, the third act of um, Good, The Bad and The Ugly just gives you an idea of how Leone would have portrayed you know, a war. Um, so yeah, this, this is one of the big ones. This, you know, as you know, the one that got away, this is almost the, one of the biggest ones that got away we've ever described. Is there anything else you wanted to, uh, um, you wanted no, to cover? I think on you covered it quite nicely, quite comprehensively. So yeah, just a shame. Yeah. I mean, this is another one. This is, this is one of the big ones. Um, as we say, there are documentaries about this. There's a 20 minute documentary about it on YouTube. There are a couple of books about Leone's life, which, uh, which tell you more about this, which we thoroughly recommend. Um, but uh, this is one where we're just going to have to imagine what might have been. 
We close the first reel of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes where they were justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film that they should have left well enough alone. This month we're looking at a slightly different remake, a film version of a classic TV show. It should have gone well as the director at the helm was the executive producer on the original TV show and was on a superb run of form, but somehow it ended in disaster. The remake Hate Watch for episode 19 is Michael Mann's Miami Vice. Now on a personal level, I remember this film coming out and I was very excited about it. I wanted to see it. I thought remake was a great idea. I was a fan of the original show and of Michael Mann's films. He was coming off the back of an incredible run of films that he directed from 1981's Thief through to 2004's Collateral. He made almost no wrong moves. There's a film he did called The Keep, which is crap, but everything else he did in that period, a 20-year period, is absolutely excellent. So him turning his attention at that time to this movie, I was excited. I went to see it at the cinema and was really, um, uh, really disappointed. Uh, and I'm not even against the idea of, you know, remakes of TV series, because there's some, been some really good ones of that. The Untouchables, Star Trek, Mission Impossible, you know, 21 Jump Street. All of these are, you know, film versions of TV shows. And Michael Mann, of all people, should have been someone you could trust to do this, but it didn't work. Uh, and I was horribly disappointed when I went to see this. For your part, James, I don't know what your sort of background or history is to this. I don't know if, you, you know, Miami Vice, the TV show, can't even be a thing for you, right? Yeah, I know of it. I know that it's from it's back in the day, like back in like the eighties. There was this TV show called Miami Vice, and it ran from eighty four to nineteen ninety. Um, and it was just a very kind of stylish, over the top show about police detectives, and it was very, it was entertaining. It was a bit daft. It was loaded. It was quite dark though. Um, but you know, it was it was a big show back in the um, back in the eighties, and it had a massive following. It had Don Johnson, who was like you know probably one of the top dogs of the uh, of the 80s and then Philip Michael Thomas who I, I don't know I don't know how how good he was um, in this TV show because I'd never actually watched it so what I did for this was that I watched a couple like the first two episodes of Miami Vice just to see what it was like and it's it's daft I, I think it's silly it's it's just basically about the the music and style of the 80s um, but it was it was different um, and it's you know it's just fun to watch and then, then I went, I started the film, and the film just really wasn't that at all for me. It tries to capture the whole, they're trying to get the kind of vibe of the music and the fashion, but it just, it seemed like there was no kind of soul in it. It was just a bit... Ugh. Yeah, it, it doesn't... I think that, I think what Michael Mann was trying to do was take the premise of Miami Vice and Vice Detectives... Uh, and do something, you know, a big updating of it. Um, but it was it was neither one thing nor the other. It, it didn't do for the the genre what what Heat did, uh, and it certainly didn't really recreate any of the enjoyment of the original TV show. Yeah, no, there was it's, TV shows back then were just kind of daft, and you put them on, and for thirty minutes you just had you enjoyed them, and it was stupid and it was silly. Uh, but you, you still enjoyed it. But this, I don't even know what tone they were trying to take with this. It was Yeah, I mean, you've put your finger on something with the original show because I think if you look back at Miami Vice now, uh, there's been 35 years of other TV shows since then and it's impossible to, you know, to look back and, and, and really kind of understand the impact of that show at the time. I mean, 
what Miami Vice did was it 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 really freshened up uh, cop shows, which pr- prior to that had been things like Starsky and Hutch, Kojak, Streets of San Francisco. Your average police procedural was a very set thing. And, and two things happened in the 80s that maybe opened things up a bit. One was Hill Street Blues, which was, it started in 1981, but it's still got quite a 70s feel. And it's like, it's sort of Chicago and it's got that gritty look. And the opening sort of season really could have been shot in the 1970s. But it's a lot more about the characters and their lives and, and, and really brings a kind of more sort of real realistic um, view of things. And it showed people you could be more ambitious with a cop show. The other thing that happened was Scarface, the movie in 1983, which showed that where it was all happening was down in Miami with the cartels and the cocaine and the drugs and the vice cops driving Ferraris. Um, because what was happening was the, the if you want to go undercover as a drug dealer, you can't be driving a fucking Buick, right? So what they did was any drug dealer they caught, they would seize their house, their car, their yacht, and they would let the vice detectives drive pretty nice sports cars because then they would look convincing when they went undercover to catch um uh uh you know real bad guys so there was an element of real life policing to this show uh and what it did was michael mann uh, it was created by a guy who'd been a writer on history but michael mann came as executive producer and he gave it the look and he gave it the style and he basically said you could make a, a tv show the way you make a movie where you could add music and add atmosphere and beautiful shots of Miami at night. It's still very much, it looks at this at this era, very much a traditional cop show. It's got your beginning, your middle and end. There were a few episodes, a few arcs over about three or four episodes, but mostly it is a pretty standard, but very good cop show. Uh, but it changed the time, the, the clothes that people wore, the use of music, everything else. It, it was a phenomenon at the time. 20 years later, what are you going to do? You've got to do something different. So Michael Mann needed to kind of do something that maybe captured the excitement and glamour of vice detectives in, in you know, in Ferraris, but he was going to need to make it. It's a Michael Mann movie, not a Michael Mann TV show. So everyone's expecting something along the lines of collateral and heat, aren't they? Which is not the same tone at all. Yeah, no, it's... Yeah, I agree. He's tried to make it more like collateral and heat as opposed to what the daft TV show was back in the day. Um, yeah, you've hit that on the head there. I just couldn't be... The, the thing is, where, where, he's, where he's fallen down for me is the story doesn't make a lick of sense. Yeah. He's kind of, you know... I, I mean, I, I, honestly, I, 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 was, I wasn't expecting him to do a film version of the TV show. I'd loved Collateral, I'd loved Heat, I'd loved a lot of those movies, and I thought Michael Mann doing... I was more than on board for him to do a modern Miami Vice movie about Vice detectives dealing with drug dealers that was a Michael Mann film, because I, I, I really like the way he makes films. But where he missed out is that, leaving aside the kind of silly plot lines and everything... In, in the show, you know, there is, you know, corruption, you know, people being betrayed. There is um, detectives go undercover and, you know, it takes a lot out of them. On a personal level, it takes a lot out to, to go undercover and pretend to be something you're not. And, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to something like a spy movie. You have to do things that are maybe kind of, you know, you've got to lie, you've got to cheat, you've got to mislead people and you've got to live a double life. But to do that, you catch the bad guy. So there's all sorts of interesting stuff you can do with that. But the story just kind of, doesn't go anywhere it's not a particularly interesting drug operation they're a drug cartel and they drop some hints to say that they're they're a big operation and they're really powerful but the actual storyline is they go undercover 
um, and they find out where the drugs are and then there's some shootouts. It doesn't actually give you, oh, here's a few twists and turns. Here's a person they've got on the inside. Here's how difficult it is to kind of break into their operation. It's just kind of, it just kind of sits there. Um, it's a real shame. Yeah, it, it it didn't work for me because you had Colin Farrell and Jamie Foxx who are two great actors. I like them both. And they are both so fun. Like, they are two fun actors and they could they could have just bounced off each other so well. You don't have to make it a comedy because I don't think the original Miami Vice was a comedy. But no, no. It had some ridiculous moments, but, you know, they could have bounced off each other and had a rapport. And they would have yeah, they had much better dialogue between each other and stuff, you know? That's the thing in the original in the original TV series they did have those quite serious moments and it was a lot of iconic um you know lots of shots of people driving cars through streets of Miami at night. So Michael Mann can do that stuff as long as he likes, right? But what they also had was the characters were quite lively, you know, there was good conversations between each other and good dialogue and the I think I think that's really where this really falls down is a couple of things. First of all, the Gong Li uh, character is terribly miscast. They never really adequately explain why a Chinese woman is is high up in a, a South American drug cartel. She's a tr- she's a terrific actress. She's really watchable, but it's quite clear to me that the original idea for that was that it, it should have been someone like Salma Hayek playing that part, right? It is a woman from that part of the world. There's even a line of dialogue that says, oh, my cousin lives in Havana, or my, my cousin's the harbour master in Havana, I can get you in. Well, if that's if that's a woman from South America, I can believe that. A Chinese woman, her cousin's the harbour master? I don't think so. And it just mm. takes you out of the movie. Why? Um, not, and not only that, the fact that they spend ages and ages on Colin Farrell and Gong Li, you know, you know, having their lovely little relationship and going on a speedboat to Cuba, but where's the story? The, the other bit where it falls down for me is that in all of these films where Michael Mann's been good, whether it's Collateral, Heat, Last of the Mohicans, anything you like, they're always very good examinations of uh, people and the values, codes, or rules they live by. And what happens when they follow those rules? What happens when they come into conflict uh, with people who live by a different set of rules? And what happens when they break their own rules? I mean, Heat, that, that that's what it's all about. There's, you know, Al Pacino's character, he's, you know, He's sworn to live and act a certain way. Robert De Niro is Neil McCauley, the, the 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 Robert. He has a certain set of values that he lives by, and the way in which they take each other on, and when they succeed or fail in in living up to their own set of rules, whether Neil McCauley should get into a relationship when he's supposed to be the person who can drop everything in his life in thirty seconds to stay ahead of the law, when when. When Neil McCauley decides to have a relationship, everyone in the movie knows, oh, that could complicate his life. In this, you get no sense of how Crockett and Tubbs normally investigate a drug deal or investigate a drug cartel. So when Sonny Crockett goes deep undercover and has a relationship with a woman who works for the drug dealers, is that something he normally does? And if it isn't something he normally does, what's made him go that far down the line this time? There seems to be no personal stakes in them. It seems like just another bunch of drug dealers. There doesn't seem any reason why they should go right out on a limb and kind of be holding hand grenades and 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 taking all these risks to catch these drug dealers. You don't know if that's the way they... You don't know why they do what they do. And if you don't know why people are doing something, it doesn't have to be super believable. It's all going to be... It's all made more exciting than real life. We all know that. But if there's no reason for these, these characters to act the way they're acting, then you just stop caring. And I just, it's really sad, but I did not care. I did not care about a single person in this film. 
yeah, it was just it was just a letdown more than anything. Shame, really. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, the sad thing is, is that Collateral was the last good film that Michael Mann has made, and he hasn't really done anything near that standard since then. So what we were, what we were actually watching with Miami Vice was kind of the beginning of the end for Michael Mann because he just, for some reason, uh, he he lost his touch. And what what you see in Miami Vice is Michael Mann, in my opinion, Michael Mann losing his touch. Man, so I mean, it was bound to happen at some point. Yeah, I mean, there's there's talk of it being quite a troubled production. Uh, there's talk of Michael Mann kind of continually rewriting as he went. So I don't think he had a clear enough idea what film he was trying to make. Um, they were filming in some quite dangerous places where they got hit by hurricanes. They had some quite strange and dodgy characters um, on set in the Dominican Republic and um, firearms were discharged. And Jamie Foxx says, fuck this, I'm going home to America and I'm not filming anywhere that's not safe. Uh, I, I don't blame him. I don't, I don't think it's, you know, I think you know, we'll talk about this in real too, but I don't think it's necessary for um, the danger on a film set to be real. Um, and, you know, there are individual good scenes. I think there are some good actors in it. Apparently, Colin Farrell was off his face and going through a lot of personal problems, and I don't think it helped his performance because what you know, I, I don't. I think both character, both actors need to be on the top of their game to kind of create some interesting chemistry uh, between him and Jamie Foxx, and they just didn't. And it's a real shame because pr- probably as as much as I was excited to see this film when it came out, he probably should have left well enough alone. We talked about him doing Gates of Fire in The One That Got Away, where he would have done a new story based on Thermopylae. And I think if he'd done that instead, I think we would have seen a much more interesting film where Michael Mann uh, takes um, a story and, and does what he's good at to bring it to life. With this, even if he'd done a good job of it, he would have been repeating himself because Miami Vice has already been done. So it was probably the wrong film in the first place. We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now. We hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation. This month, we're looking at safety on film sets. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side.